Well, good afternoon, Hallows Church. Uh, my name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the Scriptures tonight. So if I could invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Judges chapter 6. If you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, please know that there is a table of contents in the front of every Bible that can help you navigate its pages, find your way to Judges chapter 6 as we continue our journey through this book. And as you're finding your way there, I'll just share a little bit about uh, myself. I, I am the youngest of four siblings. And not only was I the youngest in my house growing up, I was also the only boy. And so I had three older sisters, and at times they treated me really well, uh, but other times they did not. And uh, one of the ways that my sisters did not treat me very well was that they loved to sing me a lullaby. Uh, they thought since I was the baby in the family that they would just sing a lullaby to me a lot. But this lullaby, if not for God's grace, I don't know where I would be uh, given the song that they would sing over my life. And I've shared this lullaby with a few folks before, and my daughter, Delaney, uh, grabbed hold of it. Now, uh, at times, she'll remember it, and she'll start singing it around the house. I don't like that very much, but the lullaby goes a little something like this. I'm not going to sing it. Andy Pandy, Puddin' and Pie, kissed the girls and made them cry. And when the boys came out to play, Andy Pandy ran away. It's a terrible lullaby, just sowing so many seeds of fear in my life. You have the fear of rejection. He kissed the girls and they made, made him cry. It's amazing I ever met Kim and had the confidence to pursue her, right? There's also the fear of, of just not being enough for whatever the situation, because when the boys came out to play, Andy Pandy ran away. It was a frightening, frightening lullaby. Well, this past week, I had the opportunity to sit with my missional community, and we asked the question, hey, what are some of the reasons why we are reluctant to obey God, or reasons why we are reluctant to participate in the purposes of God and being about the things that God is about in the world? And, and as we went through the room, just collecting all these answers, the one common denominator that they all had in common was fear. There's some element of fear that would call that causes many of us to be reluctant in our obedience to the Lord and to exercise faith. And some of those fears look like the fear of rejection. It looks like putting ourselves out there and sharing the gospel with someone and they reject us or they turn their backs on us. Others, it's the fear of not being good enough to serve the Lord and not being enough of this or enough of that or enough of whatever to really be about what Jesus is about in this church, in this city, and around of the world. And it's in light of that conversation that I'm glad we find ourselves in Judges chapter 6 tonight because essentially what you find here is a story where God uh, relentlessly overcomes this fearful and reluctant person. This guy named Gideon, who we'll learn about here in a few moments, who had a lot of fear occupying his life and not much faith, and God relentlessly goes after him and relentlessly seeks to eradicate fear and replace it with trust in himself and love for himself. So that's the story we're going to be looking at here in Judges chapter 6. And before we dive into verse 1, let me voice one more prayer for us, and we will get going. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and as we read it together tonight, would you please read our souls? And would your spirit please take your word and apply it to our hearts in ways that we need? Would you, Spirit, minister to us in ways that would affect change within us so that all of us may become more like Jesus, so that all of us would come to trust you more deeply and walk more faithfully as we journey through this world? God, we ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, this is what we read. It says, The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years, and they oppressed Israel. 
Because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. In other words, the people of Israel, Israel were plagued by fear. They were afraid of their oppressors. Verse 3, whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and the Ketamites came and attacked them. They encamped against them and destroyed the produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. They left nothing for Israel to eat, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For the Midianites came with their cattle and their tents like a great swarm of locusts. They and their camels were without number, and they entered the land to lay waste to it. So Israel became poverty-stricken because of Midian, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord. So here's that scene again. The people of Israel do not trust the Lord. As a result, God raises up a, a foreign, a, a, an oppressor who would come and, and do just that, who would oppress Israel, and, and they really shake Israel down, so to speak. As these Midianite peoples would swarm the Israelites and impoverish their land almost on an annual basis for seven consecutive years. And this forced the Israelites to start living like animals. They were afraid. So they started hiding in mountains and in caves and other strongholds. They were a people who were being oppressed into hiding. And when you look at verse 6, it says Israel became poverty stricken. Another way of translating that is that Israel was shrinking as a people. They were withering away as, as a people in the land. You know, fear has this, has this effect on our lives. If we just kind of want to look at this passage and see it as a physical illustration of a, of a spiritual reality in our lives, and that is that when we live in fear, when we are fearful people, fear has a way of impoverishing the soul. Fear has a way of shrinking one's life, prohibiting us from flourishing in the ways God would have us flourish. This is what fear does. Fear causes us to shrink back from all the things that God has for us. And there are various types of fears that we struggle with. I think some of us, as followers of Jesus, have the fear of missing out. Or we're afraid that if we follow Jesus in this direction, that means we won't be able to go in another direction. And we fear missing out on this or missing out on that if we really follow Jesus closely and faithfully through this world. But then there's another fear. We have the fear of being boxed out. And that's the sense, well, if I follow Jesus so closely, then my friends might start looking at me funny. Or my parents might start uh, being disappointed with some of the decisions that I'm making because I'm deciding to go in this direction with Jesus and not this direction as I intended as it relates to my job or as it relates to my ambitions or as it relates to this, that, or the other. And all these fears, they just have this shrinking, impoverishing effect on our lives as we give in to them and as, we, as fear begins to occupy our minds so much we find ourselves just slowly withering away. This was Israel's experience as they were living in fear because of their oppression. And so when you get to verse 6, it says they cry out to the Lord. And notice what goes down then. Verse 7, when the Israelites cried out to him, that is the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to them. He said to them, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt and out of the place of slavery. I rescued you from the power of Egypt and the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites whose land you live in. But you did not obey me. Now this is a surprising moment. Israel is being oppressed. They're afraid. They're struggling. They're withering away. They turn to the Lord and they cry out to him. And they're expecting the Lord to do what, they've, what he's done previously, perhaps, when he sent judges in response, these deliverers to deliver 
them from their oppression and to deliver them from their situation. But what does God do instead? Instead of sending them a judge, he sends them a prophet. This would be like you breaking down in your car on the side of the interstate and you call AAA. You call AAA expecting them to send a tow truck that will grab your car, take it to a mechanic where it can get fixed and your problem can be solved. But instead of AAA sending you a mechanic and a tow truck, they send you a pamphlet on how to take care of your car. And you start reading through the pamphlet and you're like, oh, well, I forgot to change the oil. That's why my car is the way that it is. This is why I broke down because I wasn't doing this right and I wasn't doing this well. This is essentially what God does in this moment. Instead of sending them a deliverer, he sends them a prophet. Instead of bringing initial and immediate deliverance, he gives them a sermon. Now let's think about that. Before the Lord would raise up Gideon and send him to deliver Israel from the Midianites, he takes this opportunity to explain to the people of Israel why they are in the situation that they are in. In other words, before he rescues them, he wants them to understand why it is that they need rescuing. He wants them to consider soberly and humbly, we are in this situation because we put ourselves here. We are in this situation because of verse 1 where we did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's why we need to be rescued. Now there's a couple of things we need to clarify about this dynamic. When the Lord sends a sermon to kind of clarify why Israel needed to be rescued, it's very important that we throw this out there. I want you to know that not all the sufferings and not all of the external pressure you feel in your life as a result of living in a fallen world, not all of that pressure and not all of your suffering and not all of your struggling is tied to a specific sin or a specific area of disobedience in your life. We know this because of what Jesus would teach in John chapter 9. There's this moment where the disciples bring a man who was born, who was blind from birth to Jesus and ask him the question, hey Jesus, who sinned? Where, where's the problem? So that this guy was born blind. Was it him or was it his mom or his dad? And listen to how Jesus responded. In that moment, Jesus looks at them and says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. So Jesus doesn't connect his suffering, doesn't connect his blindness to a specific sin in his life or into his mom or dad's life. We want to be clear that not all of the sufferings we experience in this world is tied to specific areas of disobedience in our lives. Not all of them, but some of them are. Sometimes our sufferings, sometimes our struggles, sometimes the pressure we feel in this world is the result of our own disobedience. It is the result of our own sinful choices and our own sinful decisions. I think Israel is experiencing that in this moment. Look, guys, you are in the situation because you put yourselves there. You weren't trusting the Lord to provide for you. You weren't trusting the Lord to be enough for you. So you did what was evil in his sight, and therefore you're being disciplined. You're experiencing some of the consequences of that. So not all of our sin can be tied to specific forms of disobedience, but some of them can. And we need to consider that sober-mindedly. We need to consider that humbly. This is why you read in Psalm 119, verse 67, when David is praying this prayer, and he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Before I found myself struggling, I, I sinned and I went astray. I abandoned the way of the Lord. But then after he was afflicted, he says, now I keep your word. Now I've learned. Now I've repented. Now I've come back. That's essentially David's experience there. And this would be Israel's experience in this story. So the Lord gives a sermon to them saying, look, I want you to know why you need to be rescued. 
because you're in this pattern, you're stuck in this cycle, and it needs to break, it needs to shake. And so he gives his word to them. This is one of the reasons why perhaps some of us don't like the Bible. We don't like to read the Bible because there are times when you read the Bible and the Bible just exposes you. And it has you to start thinking about areas in your life that are off-key, areas in your life that are not faithfully following Jesus. So you don't want to read the Bible. You don't want to study the Bible. You don't want to hear sermons because sermons sound too preachy in that way. But there are times in our lives, in fact, there's a regular rhythm in our lives as disciples where we need the Word and we need to hear sermons. We need God to bring clarity to us so that we might discover the way through and the way out of the situations we can find ourselves in. So when you consider that here in the Lord's response to Israel's cry, when you get to verse 11, I love this dynamic, is right after verse 10, we are not told how Israel responded. We are not told that Israel responded with repentance and that they were coming back to the Lord. But what we find in verse 11 is that God begins to save Israel before any of that is recorded. Before any repentance is mentioned, God had already set in motion a plan and a purpose to deliver them from their oppression. And this is one of the most remarkable things about the God that we worship tonight. See, some of you have a distorted understanding of what it means to be in right relationship with God. You think that repentance is the trigger for his love to be fired into your soul. You think repentance is the trigger, but what you find in this passage is that God's grace is the trigger God's grace triggers our repentance. Our repentance doesn't trigger God's grace. This is the way God always works in our lives. This is why in Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 4, I believe, he says it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. What causes us to repent and believe the gospel is his grace towards us, his goodness towards us. And what you and I also know from Romans chapter 4, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 5 verse 8, is that while you and I were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. This means before you ever thought about Jesus, Jesus was thinking about you. Before you ever looked in God's direction, God had already looked in your direction. That's why he sent Christ into the world. So we want to get that order right because God's been working out a purpose and a plan for our deliverance long before we ever repented, long before we ever put our faith in Jesus. God showed us grace, God showed us love, and it is his grace, his love that triggers our repentance. It triggers our faith in him. So you have this pattern here in this story where in verse 11, you find the Lord going to work to bring about Israel's deliverance, grace preceding repentance. And so you check it out in verse 11. This is where we are introduced to a guy named Gideon. Now Gideon's name is perhaps the most familiar name in all the book of Judges outside of maybe Samson. But his story occupies the most It takes up the most space in the book, and so it's a very important story that we'll be looking at over the next couple of weeks. But notice what we read in verse 11. It says, The angel of the Lord came, and he sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. So when we first meet this guy named Gideon, he's threshing wheat, but he's threshing wheat in an odd place. He's threshing it in a winepress. Now, back in the day in antiquity, when somebody would thresh wheat, they would usually use what's called a threshing floor that looked something like this. And this threshing floor would picture and portray uh, the areas that was common for the threshing of wheat to take place. And what you notice about a a threshing floor is that it's out in the open space, it's up on top of the ground, so that the person threshing wheat can get maximum airflow and maximum wind blowing. 
And so this would be the ordinary place someone would thresh wheat because you'd get all this wind and what a person would do, they'd step up and they'd grab a bundle, they'd throw it in the air. The wind that is blowing through would blow away what's called the chaff, that is the useless stuff. And then the useful stuff, the hard kernels, and the wheat would fall to the ground and that's what would be, would be taken in and used to nourish the people. But Gideon here isn't threshing wheat on a threshing floor. We're told he's in a wine press. He's in a place that looked more like this. And what you notice about the wine press is that the wine press is submerged underground. So this is a terribly ineffective and inefficient place to thresh wheat. And so the question is, why would Gideon go into a wine press to try to throw up his, his uh, grain to get the wind to blow chaff? Why was he trying to do this? Well, the reason why he's in the wine press is because something about Gideon that's very familiar with each and every one of us is that Gideon was a very fearful and insecure person. He was afraid of the Midianites. He was afraid of being seen. And so he tried to thresh wheat in a place where it could not be seen, where his work could not be observed. What we're being cued into here is something about Gideon's fearfulness and Gideon's insecurity. But what you find as Gideon begins to interact with the Lord in this passage is that where Gideon is threshing wheat, God takes some steps to thresh Gideon. And essentially what's going to go down in God's interaction with Gideon, it's as though the Lord is taking Gideon's life, throwing it up in the air so that the wind of his grace can blow away the chaff. So the wind of his grace can blow away all that is useless about him, namely his fears and his insecurities. And then that which is substantial, that which should be is useful, would fall to the ground. And so God starts threshing Gideon in this story. Check it out what happens next, verse 12. It says, then the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Now, that is a strange thing to say to a guy who's threshing wheat in a wine press. He's far from a valiant warrior, but that's exactly who this angel of the Lord declares him to be. Verse 13, Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? And where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. He said to him, Please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's family. But I will be with you, the Lord said to him. You will strike Midian down as if it were one man. And here God begins to blow away the chaff of Gideon's life, and he does it by declaring over Gideon a new identity. He steps up to this fearful and insecure guy who's hiding in a wine press, and he declares over him, valiant warrior. Now, to be sure, this new identity that the angel of the Lord is speaking over Gideon's life is an identity that is far too big for Gideon. It's one that he can't fill up. It's one that he cannot, at that time, fill out. It's a lot like when I gave my baseball glove to my son, Asher. I have a baseball glove that I used in high school. I carried it on into college, used it a long time. I love this glove. It fits my hand well. My son's four years old. I gifted him this glove. It does not fit him very well. It is too big for his little paw. But what's going to happen over time, he's going to grow into it. And over time, he's going to grow into the glove that is already his. I'm not going to take that glove back from him because he can't wear it. I'm not going to take that glove back for him because it because it is too big for him at this moment. No, I'm going to give him this glove. It is my gift to him. And over time, he is going to grow up into it. This is exactly what you find taking place in Gideon's life. This identity that God has given him of being a valiant warrior is too much for him. It's too big. 
But God, by his grace, is going to be at work in his life so that Gideon grows up into this identity. This is exactly what God does for each and every one of his children. He has a long track record of working in this kind of way in our lives. You consider Abraham, for example. Abraham was a man that when God showed up in his life, he changed his name and said, look, I'm going to call you the father of many nations. That's who you are. Now, at the time, Abraham had no kids. He and his wife had been unsuccessful in bearing children. So he had no kids, and at this point, he was well up in age. So the chances of them having a kid were, well, slim to none. And so Sarah, when he heard the Lord say, I'm going to call you the father of many nations, Sarah just starts laughing because it just wasn't, didn't fit him very well. But you know the story of Abraham, that Abraham would be blessed with kids and he would be blessed with many descendants, that Abraham would become the father of our faith so that when you step into Romans chapter 4, verse 17, you can read something like this. As it is written, I've made you, referring to Abraham, the father of many nations. He is our father in God's sight in whom Abraham believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. Yes, God called him to be the father of many nations. And God called that reality into existence. When he comes into Gideon's life, he calls him valiant warrior. And that identity was too big for him, but God would call that identity into existence. He would bring it out of Gideon because that's the way God works. You might think about your own life. You might think about some of the things God declares over each and every one of you. That when you put your faith in Jesus, God declares over you a new identity. And the reality is the identity we have in Christ is too big for us. It's one that we don't fill out fully. It's one that we don't have a hard time believing and treasuring most immediately and most readily. You just think about some of the things God declares over you. He says, look, you're my son. You're my daughter. You're my beloved child. This is what God speaks over everyone who is in Christ. My beloved he looks at you and he says, you are righteous. Do you feel very righteous right now? That's your identity. That is who you are in Christ. And that identity may be bigger than you, but God, by his grace, is going to grow you up into it. He looks at you and he calls you holy. Do you feel very holy right now? That label, that identity is bigger than you are right now, but God is at work. And over time, you're going to grow up and you're going to become more practically holy in your relationship with God he looks at you and he calls you a saint. He declares these remarkable truths about who you are in Christ. And the identity we have in Christ is too big for us. But over time and by God's grace, he's at work to grow us up into these realities. Who God declares us to be, that is who we will be. So we rest in that fact as Gideon is learning in this moment that he will become a valiant warrior because that's who God says he is. But then you keep going and you find some other ways that God is threshing Gideon in this moment. He does it, one, by giving him a new identity. But he does it later by empowering him for a purpose that's going to be far bigger than himself. Saying, look, you're going to be about something that is much bigger than you. And it's going to uh, overcome and overshadow the weaknesses you feel about yourself. The insignificance you believe about you. I'm about, I'm about to trump all of that. That's all about to blow away because you are about to be a part of something bigger than yourself. And so when he says, look, you're going to lead, you're going to deliver the people of Israel from the Midianites, Gideon responds with fear. I can't do this. I'm too weak. I'm too young. But God says in verse 16, I'm going to be with you. Don't sweat it. My presence is with you. What would your life look like right now if you believe that? If you believe the God of the universe was with you right now, what would your life look like? Do you think you'd be reluctant to do anything this God was calling you to do if you believed God was really with you? 
This is the reality that Gideon is being swept up into. He's being put into a position where if God's presence isn't with him, he's going to fail. And this is where each and every one of us find our lives right now. There's a reason that before Jesus, after he resurrected from the grave, before he ascended to heaven, and he took his seat at the right hand of the throne of the Father, he looked at his disciples and said, hey guys, you guys are going to make disciples of all nations. My kingdom is going to be advanced through each and every one of you. But he says to them, look, but you can't just go out and try to do it in and of your own strength. You're going to fail. So what you need to do is you need to go over here and hang out in this room. You need to take some time to pray and to wait. Eventually, my spirit is going to fall upon you. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and fills you up, you will be empowered to do the things that I'm calling you to do. Well, when God moves in our lives and he stirs our souls in his direction, understand that he's filling us with his spirit to do everything that he's calling and commanding us to do. And so we want to believe that God is with us, and we want to live and move in this direction. Later on in the Gideon story of Gideon, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit comes upon him and actually envelops him or clothes him. And it's a remarkable picture of who, what would later come in the church when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, is given to us, when he envelops us and clothes us to empower us to do all the things that God is calling us to do. And so God is threshing Gideon here by giving him a new identity and assuring him of his presence that will empower him to do what he's calling him to do. Then you look at verse 17. It says, then he said, if I have found favor with you, give me a sign that you are speaking with me. How do I know that this is coming from the Lord? How can I believe it? Please do not leave this place until I return to you. Let me bring my gift and set it before you. And the angel of the Lord said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went and he prepared a young goat and he got a bunch of unleavened bread and a half bushel of flour and he put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot, brought them back to the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord instructed him on how to prepare this gift or this offering. And then you get to verse 21. This is what happens. The angel of the Lord extended the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire came up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the, then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. And when Gideon realized that he was the angel of the Lord, listen to his response. He's responding with more fear. He's saying, oh no, Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He, he's, things are starting to click with him. He's just encountered the Lord in some way. Verse 23, but the Lord said to him, peace to you. He spoke peace into his life. Don't be afraid for you will not die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, the Lord is peace. Now, you consider that moment, and it would serve us well to ask the question, who is this angel of the Lord? How, what are we to make of, of him? There's a lot of mystery and tension surrounding the angel of the Lord's identity. He pops up a few times in the book of Judges. He showed up in chapter 2. He shows up here. He's going to show up again in chapter 13. This angel of the Lord has showed up multiple times in the Old Testament up to this point in the book of Genesis in chapter 18, he shows up there. Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush, he shows up there. Exodus 34, multiple times in the book of Joshua, you see this angel showing up. And so there's a lot of tension and curiosity about who this angel is. And when you read this passage, there's a lot of tension in it because there's one moment when the angel is speaking. You see that in verse 12 and verse 20. But then there are other verses where the Lord is speaking. Verse 14, verse 16, and verse 18. But then when the angel vanishes and the angel leaves, the Lord is still speaking. And so this has caused many people to kind of scratch their heads wondering who in the world is this angel of the Lord? Well, we have the advantage of reading this passage from the, 
from the post-resurrection of Jesus, we have the advantage of reading this passage in light of everything Jesus revealed about God and that the Holy Spirit would confirm about God in our day. And so we can ask the question, if there is one God, how can that God be both in heaven, having sent this visible figure, and at the same time be the visible figure? How can he be both persons? Well, the answer to that question is, is because we worship a triune God. This is a deep Old Testament hint that the God of creation has eternally existed in three persons. That we worship one God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there are deep hints to that in how the angel of the Lord and the Lord himself are interacting in this passage and how they interact in passages all throughout the Old Testament. And so what that means for us is that Gideon here, when he's having this encounter with the angel of the Lord, it means that he's encountering Christ. It means that he's encountering the second person of the Trinity. This is what Old Testament scholars would refer to as a Christophany. It's an appearance of the Savior before his birth in a manger. It's a remarkable thing. And notice the effect that it has on on Gideon's life. He has this encounter with Christ, and at first he's afraid because he can't be in the presence of God, but then, then peace is spoken over him, and a word of peace is given to him, and you find this remarkable hint at what Jesus would later reveal about himself when he refers to himself as the Prince of Peace. Now, when we say that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, that he's the one who brings peace into our lives, we're talking about primarily our relationship with God. That because of Jesus, we can enjoy a peaceful relationship with the creator of the universe. We don't have to live in fear of him condemning us or in fear of him crushing us. We can have peace with the God that we've rebelled against. We can have peace with the God that we've sinned against. But in saying that Jesus is the prince of peace who brings our relationship with God to the right place, at the same time, what we have to understand is that Jesus is the Lord of hosts or he is the God of war. So that on one hand, Jesus brings peace into our lives as it relates to our relationship with God. But on the other hand, Jesus ignites a conflict in our lives with all the things that we once looked to to be God for us. You begin to see this unfold in the story when you pick up reading in verse 25. Because right after this word of peace is spoken over Gideon, listen to what God tells him to do next. Verse 25, on that very night, the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull and a second bull, seven years old. Then tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Build a well-constructed altar to the Lord your God on the top of this mound. Take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon took 10 of his male servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid, Gideon's a work in progress, he was too afraid of his father's family and the men of the city to do it in the daytime, he did it at night. So here's what the Lord is telling him to do. You now have peace with God. Peace is being spoken into Gideon's soul. But then he says, now I want you to go to war. But you're not going to war with the Midianites right now. You're going to go to war with the idolatry in your own home. You're going to go and tear down the things that you have looked to to be God for you. Those things in your life that you have put up beside the Lord, those things have to come down. So Gideon has peace with God, but he is now at war with the idols, the competitors, in his, that, those things in his lives that compete for his loyalty and his faith and his trust with the Lord. And this is the rhythm of the Christian life. When you become a follower of Jesus and you put your faith in the gospel, yes, you're given peace with God. 
But at the same time, a conflict is ignited in your soul so that you are going to war with the things that you at one time trusted in and looked to supply you with life and security and hope and affection. Now, you may hear this story and think, well, it doesn't sound very relevant to me because when I met Jesus, I didn't have any idols in my house that I had to go tear down and destroy. There were no statues devoted to any other false gods in my home that I had to go down and, and literally kick over and take out of my home. If you're thinking in that direction, you're not thinking well about the human condition because idolatry in the Bible is far more substantial and is far more significant than statues and relics. Idolatry in the Bible is a matter of the heart. And the Bible says that every human being in this world is worshiping someone or something. And when Jesus steps into the soul, those other things, those other competitors need to be checked. They need to be taken down. They need to be put in the right place. There's a guy by the name of Michael Wilcock who would explain this to us. And he would, he would identify some of the idols in our lives. And I want to share his words to you because I find them helpful. Wilcock says, the gods have not changed for human nature has not changed and these are the gods that humanity regularly recreates for itself. What does it want? Well, if it's modest, it wants security and comfort and reasonable enjoyment. If ambition, it's power and wealth and unbridled self-indulgence. In every age, there are forces at work which promise to meet our desires, whether political programs, economic theories, career options, philosophies, lifestyle options, entertainment programs, all having one feature in common. They promise that they can make our lives better than we, can, than we can make them ourselves. Yet at the same time, they appear amenable to our manipulating them so we can get what we want without losing our independence. This is why we like idols so much. Idols give us independence. Idols let us stay in the driver's seat. We are in control of the idols that we cling to and that we look to to give us life. But he says, here is the enemy among us. We say we worship the Lord, but the world has crept in and begins to control our heart. That's what has to be dismantled. That's what has to be torn down. And so the Lord says to Gideon, he says, look, I'm bringing peace into your soul. I'm going to sweep you up into my purpose. But before you really go in after it, you need to do some cleansing in your home. It's not unlike when a kid is riding their bike down the street and they have a, a wreck and they slice their knee open. They come into the house and you look at the wound that's before you and you see all the gravel and the dross that is in that wound. You, just, you don't just take a bandage and apply it to the wound. No, you take some time to clean it out, to cleanse it up. You cleanse it and you clean it and then you apply the bandage. This is essentially what's going on in Gideon's soul. God has come in. He's given him peace. He's met with the Lord. He's been called into his purpose. Now some cleansing activity needs to occur. And so Gideon goes, and he, and he does it. No, he doesn't do it perfectly. He's still fearful, so he goes at night to tear down these idols. But he's a work in progress, so we'll cut him some slack. We'll show him some grace. And so he's still afraid. He goes out and he does it. But what we learn next is that when the men of the, men of the city got up in the morning, verse 28, they found Baal's altar torn down, and the Asherah pole beside it cut down, and the second bull offered up on the altar that had been built. And they said to each other, who did this? After they made a thorough investigation, they said, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. And then they conspired to kill him. They said, okay, he must die now. But then, in a remarkable fashion, Gideon's dad steps up. And notice what Gideon's dad says to the men. Verse 31, but Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead Bell's case for him? Would you save him? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him plead his own case because someone tore down his altar. In other words, your God needs to be defended. 
Chances are, if your God needs to be defended, he's not a real God. He's not a true God. And this is one of the, the clearest indicators of an idol in our lives. We can identify the idols of our hearts when we find things in our lives that we want to defend. Things that we feel like we must protect. Things that we feel like we must justify. If there are things in your life that you're constantly having to justify and to defend other people, chances are that's an idol in your heart. Chances are it's something that you are defending with everything that you got because if you don't defend it and you lose it, you feel like you're going to lose your life. This is how we identify the idols of the soul. It's what do we defend? What do we try to justify apart from Jesus? And when we identify those, that's when we can go to work in tearing them down. So this is what Joash says. He says, look, if you have to defend your God, your God's not worth very much. And the reality of the God of the Bible and the God of the gospel is that he needs no defense. Our God is a God who comes to defend us. He's not a God that we have to go and defend. We don't have to justify God. We don't have to apologize for God. We trust God and let him do his work in us and through us and all around us. And so Gideon's learning these realities as he's experiencing this moment. Now, I love what Gideon's name means. Gideon's name means hacker, and that's what he's doing. He's hacking down the idols of his land. He's being relentlessly pursued by God. He says, look, I'm going to be Lord over every area of your life. It's reminiscent of what Jesus would teach in Matthew 5, 26, when he says, no person can serve two masters. Your heart can't be divided in that direction. And so what does God say? God says, look, I'm going to relentlessly overcome that in you. I'm going to relentlessly move in your life to become the Lord of your life. And I love that God is so patient with him because, again, Gideon goes at night, but God shows him patience. But then we step into that next dynamic. After this, after this, these idols are torn down, uh, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the Kittimites, they gathered together, crossed over the Jordan, and camped in the Jezreel Valley. They said, okay, we got to go take care of Gideon, and we got to crush the people again. Verse 34, then the Spirit of the Lord enveloped Gideon, and he blew the ram's horn, and the Abiezrites rallied behind him. He sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh who rallied behind him. He also sent messengers throughout Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali who also came to meet him. So Gideon is filled with the Holy Spirit. God is bringing people to him. People are rallying behind him. They're going to follow him into battle. But notice verse 36. Then God, Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you said, I will put a wolf fleece here on the threshing floor. If dew is only on the fleece and all the, dry, all the ground is dry, I will know that you will deliver Israel by my strength, as you said. And this is what happened. When he got up early in the morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung dew out of it, filling a bowl with water. Now, this is one of the most famous moments in Gideon's life. This is a part of the story that a lot of us are probably familiar with. And so Gideon has this test. test. He asks for a sign. And the first sign succeeds. What he wanted to see happen, happened. But notice verse 39. Gideon then said to God, and he, it seems as though Gideon's realizing that he's starting to tread on some thin ice. He, he's starting to test God a little too much. So he even says, look, don't be mad at me. Don't, don't be angry with me in this moment. Let me speak one more time. Please allow me to make one more test with the fleece. Let it remain dry and the dew be all over the ground. That night God did as Gideon requested. Only the fleece was dry and dew was all over the ground. So you have this remarkable experience between God and the Lord. And again, this is a famous scene, and it's famous because it's probably the one that is most famously abused by Christians today. 
If you've heard Christians talk about throwing out a fleece to discover God's will, they're referring to this passage. And they're probably using this passage in a way that it was not intended to be used. This passage is not providing us with a paradigm for discovering God's will. So that you come to a point in your life and you have two decisions to make and you want to know which direction you should go. So I'm going to throw out a fleece. I'm going to ask for a sign so that it becomes clear. And I'm going to start looking for signs and reading signs into everything around me. And then once I figure that out, then I'm going to move in that direction. That would be God's will. Now, I've done that in my life. If you've walked with Jesus for a while, maybe you've done that in your life at different times. And, and maybe God has been gracious and he's condescended to help you in those moments. But, but here's what I want us to see in this story. When Gideon throws out the fleece, he's not trying to discover God's will. He already knows God's will. God's will has been clearly told to him, look, you're going to go and you're going to drive out the Midianites. He knows exactly what God wants him to do. He's not looking, he's not trying to discern God's will. Instead, what's going on here is he's looking for affirmation. He's looking for confirmation. He wants to know that God is with him. He wants to know that God is for him. He wants to know that God isn't against him in this movement. And so he's not looking for, he's not trying to discern God's will. He just wants a word of confirmation. He wants a word of assurance. And so he asks for two signs. And God is patient with Gideon in this moment because two times God accommodates. Two times God condescends to Gideon's wishes to minister to him and to shepherd him through this moment. To assure him that he is with him and for him, not against him. One of the most remarkable things about the God of the Bible is that he does not mind humbling himself. He does not mind humbling himself to bolster our fragile faith. He doesn't mind to condescend to us so that we might know that he is for us and not against us. He doesn't mind condescending to us so that we can know that we are loved by him. And what you and I have today that assures us of this reality is far greater than Gideon's fleece. Because we have a God who condescended to us in the coming of Jesus, don't we? A God who took on flesh and dwelt among us, stepped into the world in great humility and in great condescension to convince the world, look, I am for you, not against you. I want to be with my people, not apart from my people. You have a God who condescended greatly in the person of Jesus to live the life that he lived only to go to the cross and die there for our sins. We have a God who condescended to convince us that we are loved and to convince us that he is for us, not against us. This is the reality of the gospel. So if you want assurance tonight about whether or not God is for you and not against you, if you want assurance in knowing that you are loved by God, you don't look to a fleece, you look to the cross. And you fix the gaze of your faith upon the cross of Christ. This is why we are a gospel-centered people. This is why we are a cross-saturated people. We are all about the cross of Christ because the cross assures us that God is for us, not against us. The cross convinces us that our God will always be with us. That's the demonstration of love that is found there. And so we have something far better than what Gideon has in this moment. We have the, the ultimate condescension of God who would stoop so low to serve us by dying for us. So you want some assurance, look to the cross. I talk to a lot of Christians who struggle with the assurance of their salvation. They don't know if they're really accepted and loved by God. And my counsel to them is very simple. Are you looking to the cross? 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 If they say no, my answer, look to the cross. 
If they're not convinced, look to the cross until you are convinced. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross declares our assurance. It presents our assurance. It brings us into the reality of peace with God and a purposeful life before God. This is why when you get into 1 John chapter 4, you read that famous verse, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. It's the love of the gospel that's at play there. It's this perfect love that dispels fear from our souls. And just think about what this perfect love is like. And I'll just give you four ways to think about it. God's love towards us in Jesus is perfect in its intensity. Meaning God's love for you is never going to grow stronger. What it is right now, it will eternally be. It is perfect in its intensity for you. But not only is it perfect in intensity, it's perfect in constancy. This means that God's love is never going to dwindle because of something you do. Because you get fearful, because you obey at night and not in the middle of the day, because you are a work in progress, God's love for you is perfect in its constancy. It's not going to dwindle. It's not going to diminish. It is perfect, constantly present upon our lives. But not only is it perfect in its constancy, it's perfect in its sufficiency. That this perfect love that drives out all fear from our souls is sufficient, meaning it is enough for us. This means that nobody else in this world might love us. That's okay. God does. And God's love for us is enough. It is sufficient. It is perfect love. So if God loves me, then I'm liberated to just love people even if they never love me back. I'm liberated to serve people even if they never serve me back. I can become an embodied expression of God's grace because of this perfect, sufficient love. But then there's another dynamic. Not only is it perfect in its intensity and constancy and sufficiency, it is perfect in its sovereignty. That God's love is perfect in its sovereignty. This means that God is capable and willing to take everything in your life the good and the bad, and rearrange it and transform it into something good. This is what you read in Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Only a perfect, sovereign love is capable of doing that. And so we rest and we revel in the reality of this love because it is this love that drives out fear. And chances are, if you're reluctant to obey God, if you're reluctant to follow Jesus by faith, it's because you're not thinking well about one of these categories. You don't think God's love is perfect in its intensity, therefore you have to do things to make it grow. You don't think God's love will be perfect in its constancy, therefore you're afraid to fail, because, so you don't put yourself out there. You think if I fail, then God's love is going to be diminished. Or you're fearful in the sense that it's not perfect in its sufficiency. You don't believe God's love is enough for you. Therefore, you don't put yourself self out there. You feel like you need to be loved by everybody else. And his love isn't enough for you. And that fear is causing your life to shrink. It's causing your soul to become impoverished. But then you also don't believe, perhaps, that God's love is perfect in its sovereignty. This is why you don't take any risks. This is why you don't take any risks or do anything in your life that might bring suffering into your life because you think all suffering is bad and all of it is useless, all of it is chaff. But do you know, as you relate to God, all, of, all the sufferings of our lives are actually incredibly useful. The sufferings of our life, that, that's the heavy stuff that falls to the ground and continues to be used by God to transform us into the people God would have us be. 
God's love is perfect in its intensity, constancy, sufficiency, and sovereignty. And when you get that, what do you have to be afraid of? If you really get this, what is there in this life or in this world that you must fear? Well, I hope you'll answer that there's nothing. If you're getting this, there's nothing for you to be afraid of. Let's pray.